you wouldn't stand a chance. I mean, you're gone. He started saying, call 911, Levi is dead. Ma'am, what's going on? The truck fell on my stepson. Oh my God. <laughs> his 23-year-old son, Levi, dies in his tragedy. At first, it didn't appear to be anything out of the ordinary. Oh, it appeared to be a, an accident. You know, this was a story that played out in upstate New York. I'm from upstate New York, and I remember people consumed by this story, and it only got more twisted as the years went on. Wherever Carl goes, tragedy takes place. It was a deja vu moment for Carl. In 91, he had lost his wife and lost his home and everything they owned. How unlucky is this guy? Christina was trapped inside that bathroom with the fire raging just outside that door. It wasn't an accident. I heard my mother screaming. My father had said, Mommy's gone to heaven. It seemed like every couple years, something was burning. A lot of people have said when this guy needed money, a family member would die. There's definitely a pattern there. Cindy's concerned, OK, first wife dies in this tragedy. Levi dies in this tragedy. Am I next? Was she convinced there was a killer in her own home? There's Aaron. Where's Katie? Katie, look at Katie. What's our Katie? Hi, Katie. My name is Aaron DeRoche. My name is Katie Reynolds. And, and Carl Carlson is my father. It does seem surreal sometimes that this is my life. Does this much bad stuff happen to normal people? He lies and he's able to manipulate people very easy. That's who he's always been. So for me, I saw the monster more than the man. This is a story that has really taken years to unfold. I began covering it seven years ago in upstate New York, but really no one could have imagined, no one could have predicted how this would end up. Headed where right now? Headed to 885 Yale Farm Road, which is the, the Carlson residence. And the families are quite connected in the community, right? They're a well-known family. Uh, they've been here for you know, generations. My grandfather settled right here. We're a large family. Carl is my brother. Carl had five brothers and a sister, almost all of whom remain in the area. His father was a highway official in that county for almost 50 years. His brother was a town counselor. Definitely a family that has a lot of connections. The Carlson family name is a, has always been a very reputable name in Seneca County. Seneca County sits between two of the beautiful Finger Lakes, Seneca and Cavett. Pretty much smack in the dab in the middle of the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York. We're between the, the cities of Rochester and Syracuse. The village of Seneca Falls is known for its wonderful life. The current belief is that Seneca Falls was the model for the village of Bedford Falls and its wonderful life. Yay! Hello, Bedford Falls! When I met Carl in November of 1992, he was a single dad to his three children. Carlson's first wife, Christina, was 30 years old when she died in a tragic fire just years before he would meet his second wife, Cindy Carlson. 
he seemed like he was a hands-on dad. The youngest, Katie, adored her father. Aaron and Levi seemed that they had a, a, a special bond. Levi was amazing. He was so creative. He was very smart, um, but he had a learning disability. So when it came to bringing home good grades, he couldn't because of the disability. Levi had a, a difficult life growing up. Levi's life was everything that you wouldn't want your kid to grow up with. He went through a rebellious time in his teenage years, and um, him and his father seemed to clash. As he got older, he got into more of the metal music, and you know, he kind of changed his appearance a little bit, but deep down, he was always still that same goofy kid. He married early, had two young daughters. The marriage didn't pan out. Levi kind of pulled his life together. He was, he was a, a good young man. He wanted to make better of his life. On November 20th, 2008, 911 received a, a frantic call from Cindy Carlson. 911, what's the location of your emergency? Yeah, uh, I'm at the 885 Yale Farm Road. Okay. I think I need an ambulance. Levi had come to the home of Cindy and Carl Carlson at the request of Carl. Carl told me that Levi was going to come out to work on an old farm truck that we had that day. Our plan was that we needed to attend my aunt's funeral. While Levi is in the garage working under that farm truck, Carl and Cindy are getting ready and dressed to go to a funeral. I went and got in the passenger seat of the car, and Carl had told me that I'm just going to go out and let Levi know that we're leaving. It was just a minute or two. And then Carl came and got in the car. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. He and Cindy leave to go to a funeral down in Pena, New York. We were gone for... Um, four hours. They return home. Cindy first notices Levi's car still parked in their driveway. She's kind of concerned. I went into the house and Carl came up to the window and the door and started banging and saying, call 911, Levi is dead. Ma'am, what's going on? The truck fell on my stepson. The truck fell on your stepson? And we just got home and I don't think he's alive. You don't think he's alive? No, my husband's lifting up the truck. Cindy's basically taking information she got from her husband, Carl, and is relaying it to the 911 dispatcher. Oh, they want to start CPR. Do you know CPR? His chest is crushed. His chest is crushed? No. He, he's probably been under here for hours. Oh, my God. <laughs> Carl had pulled Levi out um, from underneath the truck. And you can, could see the indentation on his um, chest. The truck was jacked up by a single uh, railroad-type jack. This is the kind of jack that the police found? That, that's similar. Similar. Uh, it's a railroad jack. And you make for a very weak foundation. And the higher it gets, the weaker it gets. I'll never forget that the team, we all went to this local junkyard to try to find a similar old farm truck, uh, the weight of it, just to see what it would be like uh, propped up on a single railroad jack. Would you go under this pickup? I would never go under a truck. I, I don't like going underneath trucks when they're sitting all four tires on the ground. So you've got it jacked up here with a railroad jack. Look at that thing tip, look at that jack going, just wobbling. 
but that jack is moving. I mean, that's just crazy. It's, it really is. I mean, it's... They have time to get clear of that. You wouldn't stand a chance. You, you're, you're gone. I mean, you're gone. The ambulance was there. They were just pulling Levi out of the barn and putting him into the ambulance. When police arrived, what were the parents like? Very distraught, very upset, uh, crying, um, you know, grief-stricken. I remember the sheriff's trying to console Carl because he was so distraught. Levi was taken to the hospital where he was pronounced dead. Levi's 23 years old at the time of his death. At first, it didn't appear to be anything out of the ordinary. No, it appeared to be a, an accident. I get a call from my niece that my nephew has, has died. I knew as soon as I heard that Levi was gone, that he had done it. I knew every fiber of my being. I said, I have no idea what he stands to gain from this. But it begs the question, could a father kill his own son? that he could line dance. I was kind of looking for a line dancing partner. Um, come to find out, he really had no clue about line dancing. When Cindy met Carl, she sees this physically strong, good-looking, successful in her mind guy that unfortunately he's dealt with a tragedy of the death of his wife in a house fire in 1991. What he had told me about the fire was that he was able to pull the children out. By then, the house was engulfed. It had been almost two years. He was heartbroken. Um, he loved her. I felt extremely sorry for him. I think she was yearning for the family package. He came with a package. It was pretty quick. He brought her over to the house and and introduced us. And initially, it was, it was a nice change of pace. For me, it was... I'm going to have a mom like all the other little kids my age have. She did initially fill that void. Cindy now is kind of the instant mother or the mother figure in their life. We were married in 1993. It turns out it wasn't so happily ever after for the Carlson kids. Their life with Carl, as they describe it, was filled with work, chores, discipline. We did the sweeping and the mopping, dusting, everyday vacuuming. We cooked. Dad would get home and Cindy would go right to him right away and, you know, Aaron did this or Levi did this and you need to take care of it right now. And he did. There were times when if the kids really misbehaved, I would tell him he needed to talk to them. And sometimes I felt like he was overly strict with them. Carl was ruling them with such a tight fist they couldn't be kids. He always had chores to do. There was always work to do. He used physical labor as a form of punishment pretty consistently. One time, I don't even know what I'd done, but he wanted me to carry 10-gallon buckets full to the brim of water back and forth from the house to the barn, and he would just watch and wait for my body to physically give out. When it was Levi, um, he would take him outside. My father told me that Levi was a man, so he could take it. 
As far as physical abuse, I did not see that. He hit it well. Levi moved out when he was 16. It became an escape for him. He needed to get out of the house. Pretty soon thereafter, he had met Cassie. Levi was 18 when he had his first daughter. And then the second one came two years later. He got married at a young age, and their, their marriage did not work out. She was really one of the only people in his entire life that had loved him and accepted him for who he was. And losing that was traumatic for him. Prior to Levi's death, his life was on an upswing, you know. He was coming back to the farm more often. He was able to get a job with one of the factories that was in Geneva. They had insurance and stuff that he needed as a father trying to support his children. After Levi's death, the investigation was very cursory. General reports were filed. The doctor signed off on it. There was no autopsy. It gave every appearance of being an unfortunate accident. It was shortly after Levi died that Carl had told me that um, Levi had had a life insurance policy. The life insurance policy that's taken out on Levi, it's beyond bizarre. Carl drives Levi, his 23-year-old son, to an insurance office and introduces Levi to an insurance agent. They wanted to get an insurance policy on Levi, who had two young girls worked in a glass factory and felt there were job hazards and accidental death was, was a, a possibility. Carl convinces Levi to take out a life insurance policy worth $700,000. I didn't realize that Carl actually paid the first premium. I did not know that, and he paid cash. When this life insurance policy is taken out and the first payment is made, there's provisional coverage, but it's providing that the subject pass a medical exam. Carl and Levi did not tell the agent that Levi had a serious swallowing disorder that made it difficult to ingest food and that he had been treated for that disorder several years before. The likelihood is that New York Life would have suspended or dropped the policy or we had to rewrite it once Levi's medical conditions were brought to their attention. Levi Carlson's medical exam was scheduled for the day after he died. Even though Levi didn't make it to that medical exam, the insurance company still paid out to Carl. Dad also made a point to tell me was that Levi had left a will. This was a handwritten note? Yes. Saying what? That his father was going to be the sole executor of his estate and basically disperse the money to his kids. He said that it was barely enough to cover the funeral expenses for Levi. $700,000? That would be paying for a heck of a funeral. It turns out nobody in Carl's life knew about that life insurance money other than his wife, Cindy. When I questioned Carl, why were you beneficiary? He had told me that because Levi was going through this nasty divorce. Carl made it out to be that Levi didn't trust his ex-wife, that Levi wanted his daughters taken care of, and he trusted his dad. I didn't think it was odd because Levi had worked his way back into the house a little bit more, and him and dad seemed to be getting along pretty good. I just trusted my husband. There was no reason for me to question anything. The note says all of the assets go to the father to be handed out. Yes. And when was the letter notarized? The day of his death. At the time, law enforcement didn't know about any of this. So once it was ruled an accident, it seemed like it was case closed. It wasn't until four years later that the investigation was reopened. 
With everything that you discovered here, what then did you make of what happened to his first wife? Suspicious. I went to the house the next day and could not, for the life of me, understand why somebody didn't try to get her out. It wasn't an accident. Years before Levi Carlson would die underneath that truck, Carl Carlson had experienced loss before. When Levi died, I assume it was some sort of a deja vu moment for Carl, that he'd been there before. In 91, he had lost his wife and lost his home and everything they owned. There's beautiful mommy over there. My mom's name was Christina, but everybody who was really close to her called her Chris. I had two daughters. Uh, one was uh, Susie Homemaker, and that was Chris. The other one was a little sports jock, and that was Colette. She was three years older than me. Everybody knew I was her little sister. She didn't see bad in anyone. Um, even though somebody could have done something horrific, she would find a way to find something positive about them. Carl met his first wife, uh, Christina, when he was in the Air Force. She had told me she'd met a nice guy, and so I asked him questions about him. She seemed very, very excited about this particular person. And then when she told me they were getting married, you know, I w wished her the best. And as soon as I could get out there to see her, I got out there. Carl worked at a stone quarry in Seneca County. And ultimately, Carl moved to California to take a job. He, he got laid off. I said, come out here to California. You, you always have a job out here. I made him a partner in my company. So Carl, out, out of the blue, just packed everybody up, and he took off for California to strike it rich and famous. And that was a typical Carl adventure. And of course, I'm excited, because that means my sister and her kids are coming home, so I'm very excited. The Carlson family lived in the town of Murphy's. Murphy's is a gold rush era town that was settled by pioneers, miners, and it's existed here since the mid to early late 1800s. It's Northern California. Uh, it's a, a quite a hike from Sacramento, uh, an hour or two. It's uh, quiet backcountry roads. We loved Murphy's. My mom would actually take us on, on walks and we would collect leaves and acorns and we would go on picnics. Pennsylvania Gulch Road, where the Carlson family settled, was off the highway down a rural road. Where Carl and Christina and their three children lived was an old mining shack. It was converted into a house, but it was, it was a difficult environment. It was very dilapidated, but um, I remember when we moved in, gosh, my mom put in a lot of effort to get the house clean. She painted it, she decorated it, she sewed curtains. She was a phenomenal seamstress. It was amazing when uh, my father wasn't home but when he was home, it was very tense. He just had a very aggressive personality, um, kind of that personality that either my way or the highway, and, and, and the highway isn't an option, so it's my way. For her 30th birthday, I bought her a glamour shot. I thought this would just be the perfect 30th birthday for her, because she really didn't want to turn 30. Walk into my house, he sees her, tells her, take the makeup off, you look like a whore. And she went to the bathroom and took it off. When things would get 
to the point where she felt she didn't want us to witness um, the arguments or the fights, she would request that they go back to the bedroom. But we, we heard, I heard. There were some glaring things to me that I didn't like that I talked to her about um, multiple times. According to Colette, Christina was getting ready to move out, take the kids with her and move in with her. Just wanted to wait, get through the holidays. Christmas morning, 1990. Levi, look at me, please. Let me get your face in this. Thank you, darling. It was the last Christmas we all had together at my mom's house. You know, opening presents, it's her being goofy. On January 1st, 1991, um, it was a day kind of like any other. We were just playing around the house. Carl's daughter, Erin, recalled him taking a Christmas tree out of the house and dousing it in, in kerosene. He was going to burn the Christmas tree, and he wanted us to watch, so he lined us up and said that he wanted us to see how quickly a house could burn. And I was just shy of seven, but I assumed it was kind of a lesson, like, don't play with matches, don't play with fire. And then we went back inside. Our mom got us ready to go down for our nap. Levi was sleeping in his room. Katie and Aaron were sleeping in their room. And Christina went into the bathroom to take a bath. So while Carl's wife is taking a bath, uh, he says that he was upstairs in the attic working on a fan before uh, then going out to the garage. He walks out into the garage, which the garage is probably 50 feet. He's working in the shop, and it's at that point he hears his wife screaming his name. He comes out, looks, and that's when he sees the smoke. He sees flames. He sees the house is on fire. He hears Christina say, Carl, get the kids. She loved those kids, and she would have done anything for them. I heard my mother screaming, and I went to the door. It was slightly jar, so I kind of, you know, peeked out the door. And at four years old, I don't think I really understood what was happening. What I saw down the hallway it was engulfed in flames. Carl says, you know, the smoke's pouring out of the house, flames, and he goes up on the porch and to Levi's bedroom window and breaks the window. Carl claims he sees his son there unharmed, so he reaches in, grabs his son by the hair, and throws his five-year-old son out of the house into safety. He then goes to the other side of the house, breaks the window to the girl's bedroom. He was just there and he pulled us out. After saving Aaron and Katie, he said he returned to the house and tried to enter into the door, but there were too many flames. It's 1991, uh, not everybody has a cell phone, so uh, he, he leaves this fire scene. We decided his best next course of action would be to go seek out help. I had two different people come to my door and said they had heard on the scanner there was a fire at the end of Pencombe Road. Just walked out here in the street. I could see the smoke and I, I knew I knew where it was coming from. My first thought just get out there. Emergency services, fire department, and first responders respond to the scene. The people that were close to Christina had a lot of questions about what happened that day. It's obvious that they're suspicious. Why he didn't knock this out. 
there was a $200,000 policy on Christina. It's just, it's all red flags. It makes you wonder, just how unlucky is this guy? And these are all from the fire. From the house it burned. Christina Carlson perished in the house fire. They found her doubled over outside of the tub with a rag covering her face. That day, I got out there and you know I started looking around. Somebody directed me over to the ambulance. And uh, when I got in the back of the ambulance, I, I see the whole family except for my daughter, Chris. So that's when I realized what had happened. Everybody was rushing around with a purpose, and my dad wasn't. And he was just standing there casually like, like it was any other day. There were people in California who, right from the beginning of 1991, believed that Christina's death was not accidental. Christina Carlson's cousins went to the burnt out home and created a video. She took extensive video footage of the inside and outside of the house, the area where Christina's body was discovered in the bathroom. This here is the bathroom where Christina was found. The bathroom door is here. Both of them evaluate the house, look through the ruins. It's obvious that they're suspicious. Why he didn't knock this out? In front of the bathroom window is a board nailed into the wall. Most of the bathroom area is still intact. You can clearly see the boarded up window to the bathroom. Carl's story is that a few days prior to the fire, his wife was trying to open the bathroom window and she was using a toilet plunger and broke the window. Carl's solution, he said, was to take a warped wooden board that he had in his shop and use 17 nails to hammer it into the wall. There's no way she could have got that off. Isn't there anything she could have used to get that off? I went to the house the next day. I asked somebody to drive me out there, and they said, Colette, you don't want to go out there? And I said, yes, I do. I stood in the bathroom and could not, for the life of me, understand why somebody didn't try to get her out. Between the boarded-up window and the fire raging just outside the bathroom door, she was trapped. There was no getting out. I asked him, why didn't you get the board off yourself? And he said by the time he got around and got the kids out of the windows, that it was too late, he couldn't get near it. So after the fire, Carl talks to investigators and he tells them how he thinks the fire might have started. Carl goes on with a very elaborate story told back in 1991 that days prior to this fire, his wife brought in a five-gallon jug that was filled with kerosene. They used kerosene heaters inside of the house. They have a cat and a dog, and those animals are roughhousing, which knocks over the container of kerosene. I do remember there being a spill on the floor. They, Mom had towels and blankets piled up, and we were having fun climbing over the top of them. He had uh, been working that day of the fire. He was working in the attic area. Carl says he was using a trouble light up in the attic for light just before he went out to the garage. Carl's claimed that the trouble light, which either fell from the attic or which he left on the kerosene spill, likely caused the fire. 
And according to Carl, he says that once the fire began, he did what anyone would try to do to try to save their family. There are a few things that are a little fuzzy, but there are some things that I remember just like it was yesterday. He pulled us out through the window. He took Katie and I to the truck. He told us to get down and not to look. We were kids, curiosity got the better of us, so we turned around, all of us, and we just kind of watched. She watched Carl walk slowly to the house and not make any real attempt to break into the house and save Christina, her mother. My father had said, mommy's gone to heaven. Even before the ambulances got there, the firefighters, like, while we're sitting in the truck, we didn't understand, of course, the gravity or what it really meant, but we knew, so we were all really quiet. Christina's death is ruled an accidental death. The actual physical cause of death of Christina Carlson was smoke inhalation, which indicates that the fire was not on top of her. We just flew to California as soon as we could get there. He was very stoic emotionless and he just said I want to go home meaning New York and it, at the time it made sense in four days they had everything taken care of and uh, they were off to New York they were gone before she was even laid to rest if you really were that concerned about everything that happened, you would stay around and, and you wouldn't be avoiding talking with detectives or the fire marshal. Carl Kent, who was the investigator for California Department of Forestry, he had a lot of questions about the cause and who started this fire. And I was requested to come to a fire scene. I thought the circumstances of the fire were suspicious. There was um, concern that something wasn't right. And it didn't help that Carl had taken out an insurance policy on Christina just weeks before that deadly fire. Carlson went to an insurance agent and bought a $200,000 policy on his wife. The fact that the policy was purchased 19 days before Christina's death, I think, rang the alarm bells in the head of State Farm Insurance. State Farm brought in Ken Buskey. Typically, I'm hired by an insurance company to answer what the cause of the fire is. The story they related to me at least initially made sense as a story that the hot bulb from the trouble light could ignite the uh, kerosene soaked into the carpet. But you know, when that investigator looked at that severely burned light, he was able to determine that the filament had not been energized at the time of the fire, meaning the light wasn't on. If a bulb is off, of course, it's not apt to be the cause of the fire. Mr. Carlson's story simply couldn't have been true. So Ken Buskey turns his report into the insurance company, telling them he's convinced that this was no accident. This was a set fire by a human being. Well, we clearly know there was only one human being capable of starting that fire. But for whatever reason, that report didn't stop the insurance company from paying out the claim. Carl was paid $215,000, and it was not explained why their recommendation to not have him be paid out was overlooked. The insurance company did a very good investigation. Law enforcement, it didn't seem, was doing anything. I never saw Mr. Buskey's report. I didn't know who Mr. Buskey was. It just seemed like when Carl moved to New York a few days after the fire, it's like everything stopped and there wasn't much follow-up. I asked if they would 
front the monies for me to travel back there and interview him. Carl Kent wanted to go to New York to interview Carlson in person, but his superiors turned him down, saying that there just wasn't enough money for that kind of trip. The DA's office said it was a good circumstantial case, but there wasn't enough to prosecute at that time. I was hoping something would happen, but somewhere after maybe the 15th year, I was beginning to think somebody got away with murder. All these years later, with his 23-year-old son, Levi, dead, there are people who start to wonder, did he get away with murder not once, but twice? You get a phone call. I was asked if, uh, if we didn't investigate an accident involving Levi Carlson's death. Do you remember the call to this day? Oh, yeah. Cindy's concerned now that the first wife dies in this tragedy. Levi dies in this tragedy. Am I next? After Levi died, oh my God. life moved forward. Everyone went about their business. Time marched on. Carl collected a large insurance policy on Levi. If I had known that there was an insurance policy, I would have gone straight to the sheriff's department. Carl received approximately $700,000. He claimed that this money was going to be used for Levi's children, his grandchildren. Levi's insurance money is being spent by Carl and Cindy, not Levi's children. What were they spending money on? Well, it looks like a lot of money went to a, a duck business, a gourmet duck business. It was just another one of Carl's daydreaming ideas, get-rich-quick schemes. The idea was he was going to raise gourmet ducks to sell to restaurants. But what happened is Carl started right away ordering more and more ducks. We went from raising 10, 20 gourmet ducks to thousands. I mean, duck feed for thousands of ducks cost a lot of money. He doesn't know really what he's doing. He's just bailing water. It's losing money left and right. Dad and Cindy, their finances weren't making sense to me. There was also new vehicles quite frequently. They would constantly be going on vacations. I finally confronted her and I, you know, I said, what is going on here? This, this doesn't make sense. But she just denied everything. Carl is the person responsible for spending the bulk of that money, and he kept Cindy in the dark. At this time, he's keeping me blind. He doesn't want me to know anything. Because he knows I questioned everything, he's just gonna do what he wants to do. That's just how it was with Carl. Cindy Carlson told us that it was about two years after Levi's death that she actually started to grow suspicious of the man she was married to. There is not one thing that I just said, oh my God, he did it. It happened over time. I would have these panic attacks. I would be in my living room and say, oh my gosh, did he have something to do with Levi's death? Christina's family said he had something to do with her death. Was she convinced there was a killer in her own home? I think that she suspected it. Cindy Carlson says that during this time, she was so terrified of her husband, she started sleeping with a knife under her bed. And finally, she just had to move out. At the end, when there was very little money left, and Carl kept spending and spending and spending, uh, 
Yes, I took some money because I needed to keep myself alive. I had nothing left and I'm scared. She is concerned enough that she hires a private detective to, to look into it. With self-preservation, she probably was concerned for her life when she realized that there was a policy on her. A private investigator started digging in and finding out I would be worth 1.2 million to Carl if I was dead. One night, I had called um, my cousin and told her my fears. I think Carl might have killed Levi. She said, why would Carl kill Levi? There's nothing for him to gain from that. And I said, yes, there was. He gained $700,000. Cindy's cousin, Jackie Himmel, um, called in a concern that she had to the police. And you get a phone call. And what are you told? I was asked if, uh, if we didn't investigate an accident involving Levi Carlson's death, and I looked it up. This family member has got some suspicions, concerned that things just aren't adding up. You know, wherever Carl goes, tragedy takes place, and financial payoffs follow suit. And once we started looking into uh, prior incidents, that was the first indication that something wasn't right here. And so as investigators start to look into Carl Carlson's past, you know, it doesn't take them long to, to see what is a frightening pattern that dates back decades. The first thing that came up was a, a car fire from 1986. It was a brand new Mustang purchased by Carl Carlson, had $10,000 insurance on it, and it burned up in his driveway. According to the report, we heard was nothing in the trunk, nothing in the glove box. The car just burned up, and the insurance took care of the payment, and he got out from under it. Barn fire is another one of those coincidental tragedies. One evening in 2002, I was asleep, and Carl sat upright in bed and looked out the window and said, um, oh my gosh, the barn's on fire. I knew there were horses in there. There was our prize Belgian mare and two babies. So it was devastating to see the barn burning down, which is part of our family's history, and then also to see the loss of these horses that were conveniently just put in the barn. It's somewhere around $115,000 Carl's paid out on this barn and the horses. Here we go one more time. A tragedy and a payout. I call it blood money. He got an insurance policy from my daughter. He got another insurance policy when he had a barn burned down with expensive horses in it. It, it yeah, was it life. seemed like every couple years something was burning, you know, so I mean, I feel like we kind of knew and just expected it. We choose to reach out to Cindy Carlson to further investigation. First thing she said was, thank God you called. When you asked her to help you out, she said yes. She agreed and put a wire on. Part of me feels like I'm walking into a booby trap. Do you want to go through my purse? I thought maybe I can get him to confess that was my goal. If Carl did this, she wanted to get him. I'm terrified. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, my husband is a murderer. You know, this was a story that played out in upstate New York. I'm from upstate New York, and I remember people consumed by this story, and it only got more twisted as the years went on. What kind of parent 
her father would push a truck over on their own child and let them suffer and die. It was the most terrifying time in my life. And it becomes a huge story. They asked him, you know what this is about? And he said, oh, you want to talk about my dead wife and dead son? So when he says, who could do that? Who could kill their wife that way? Well, we already, we already know that you killed your, your son that way. I told him that I wanted to see my sister. And um, he said, you can't. She's a crispy critter. That was his term, a crispy critter. He smiled like a Cheshire cat. And he said, it's been 22 years. They haven't caught me yet, and they're not going to. But before Carl would walk away for good, there would be one more unbelievable twist in this case that it's almost impossible to believe. There's Carl getting the turkey ready. Levi, boy, don't you look handsome today. This wasn't about a job. This was a passion. This was a passion to bring justice. Look at those two. Lovely people over there. For Christina, Levi, and their family. My pride and joy sitting over in the rocker. Investigators in Seneca County get a tip, and that tip is looking to Carl Carlson. Look at that big son-in-law mind. That's when the tide starts to shift. So the year was 2012. It was about three years after Levi Carlson had died. And as investigators begin to take a much closer look at this case, they learned that Levi Carlson had a life insurance policy and that his father, Carl, was the beneficiary to this $700,000 life insurance policy. That seems very odd when, when Levi had children of his own to leave money to. Yeah, for, for me, that was enough to reop reopen the investigation right there. It was the most terrifying time in my life. I decided that I just could not do it anymore. I couldn't live with Carl anymore. I needed to get out of the house. Shortly after I left is when law enforcement called me. First thing she said was, thank God you called. And, that she, said, and she said that she also had suspicions. They said they had a tip from a, a family member that maybe there was something more to Levi's death. That's when we started working together with law enforcement. Cindy was coming in on a regular basis. It was an ongoing process for months. I think she was almost kind of like, almost wanting to be part of the police investigation team. I was watching a show where a woman was taping her um, mother secretly and trying to get her to confess to killing her father. And I remember just thinking, I'm going to do that. I'm going to get a recorder, and I'm going to start recording my conversations with Carl. I met Carl in a busy restaurant, and Carl had actually picked the place, I think, because he was worried that I was recording. And I just told him that I'd consider getting back together with him if he came clean or confessed about every single thing he did during our marriage. Every lie he told, you come clean, and I'll consider it. He actually confessed. When she came to my office, she was all excited, and she said, he, he just told me he killed Levi. And she goes, and I recorded it. I think she, she pretty much thought that this was the home run. 
what, what happened was it was inaudible. It was a pretty poor recording at best and surely uh, one that didn't capture all that Cindy thought it captured. But now it's the detectives who have an idea and they ask Cindy if she's willing to wear a wire to try to get Carl Carlson to confess to this again. We're gonna pick a restaurant, we're gonna put undercover officers in there and we're gonna wire her up professionally and see if they can recreate this conversation. And I said yes. She's got the wire on where? Underneath her clothing. And what does he think he's walking into? Uh, he thinks he's coming to talk to his wife uh, about getting back together. About reconciliation? Yes. But she has no plan to get back together? No. She's here for you? Yes. So the two of them are sitting together in the corner. And you had private investigators all through the room? Yes. Several of us sat in the immediate area with other investigators in plain clothes sitting inside the restaurant, nearby. Hi, too. Yep. This time now he's very suspicious that I want to hear the same things that he said before. Did I purposely do No, not at all. That's not what you told me, Carl. No, it isn't. Part of me feels like I'm walking into a booby trap. He even said, I feel like you're setting me up. How am I going to set a trap? Do you want to go through my purse? Carl's denying that he ever made any such admission. So we're kind of like taken back like, well, what did he really tell us? What, you know, what's going on here? I couldn't get him to confess to the same exact thing that he had confessed two days before. You can hear Cindy Carlson pressing her husband Carl over and over again. She doesn't give up. As the questions become more aggressive, Carl appears to make a halfway admission. I asked you if you pushed the truck and you said yes. I didn't push the truck, I said. I said I had nothing to do, but I said I took advantage of the situation once it happened. And that is exactly what I would find it very unusual that a parent would refer, would refer to the death of their child as an opportunity. So right now, I need to I know, but I'm just share. telling you. I mean, did it fall hard, or? No. I mean, you just, it just had to bump it? Yeah. I mean, because it's so wobbly, you know, because the only thing that was touching the ground is just the back two wheels. Any dessert? Oh, no. No, but I'll have more coffee, thank sure. you. Sure. So then what Hold happened? it, and then. I mean, what, did he make a noise? It was instant. I mean, you think. It's not clear-cut, and it's not definitive. By no means did we think this was a slam dunk. All right, um, I'll be in touch with you. Okay? All right, bye. So at that point, we knew we were going to be bringing him in for an interview. And they asked him um, to come in for questioning. They said, do you know what this is about? And he said, oh, you want to talk about my dead wife and dead son? This isn't going to be a simple interview and a simple confession, and we all kind of know that going into this. Carl's very comfortable with them until they start asking him very pointed questions. That's when the interview turns into an interrogation. Kill them. What killed? The truck. How did the truck kill? It landed on. Just fell over. 
I felt like I was getting close. He was close to telling me what really happened that day. It was November 23rd, 2012. Go ahead and have a seat. All right. Carl is picked up by two investigators. He's brought to the Senate County Sheriff's Office into an interview room. And you can see in that interview that Carl's very comfortable with them. I think it's the 23rd, but you know what? Let me check. We want to be sure about this. <laughs> the investigators are very reasonable with how they initially approach it. They Mirandize him. We're obligated to read your rights. So I don't want you to get nervous about it, but we're going to do it because we do everything by the book, okay? So you have the right to remain silent. Most of the questions we asked, we already knew the answers to. It was just going to be how Carl was going to answer them. You haul him in, and you begin asking questions. How many different stories did he have? Three. What was version one? Version one was essentially the same story that was in the original report. So Carl would tell detectives that after he returned home from that funeral with Cindy, that he walked out into the garage and discovered his son Levi crushed underneath that truck. Went out there and found him. You know, then we went to the hospital. What do you mean you found him? I found him dead. Carl knows that they know something. He doesn't know the extent of what they know. Here's the thing. You confess to your wife. I lied Period. to my wife. What do you guys hear? Right. I'm just here. You have her wired? And well, be honest with Yes, we do. I thought you did. It's all recorded. One thing became very clear is that he liked to talk. And he liked to talk about his favorite subject, which was him. Do you mind if I stand up? No. no. Carl is talking about his history in the Air Force. We knew that you were in the, in, the, in the Air Force. His personal injuries. And it tore three of them. He's going through basically a complete narrative of his life. Yeah, so anyways... We sit him back down again? I have to. Because I'm 100% disabled. He wants to keep reverting and talking about the pain in his back and how his back's bothering him. And woe me, and forget about the, that his son's died, his wife's died. Let's worry about Carl and his back problem here. <sighs> bad. He does It was typical of him trying to get sympathy throughout the whole interrogation. There's one thing that stuck in my mind that came from Cindy Carlson. Her exact words were, he's a sympathy junkie. And as we got into the latter part of the interview, I gave him a lot of sympathy and a lot of hands-on contact, and that did work. Roughly three hours into the interview, his version two starts. Version number two was what? When he went back into the garage to see Levi, he was already dead. The truck had already been falling over. And I found him dead. You went out there and the truck was rolled over on him? Yeah. And I... Panicked. I don't know. So you, you panicked in what regard? Just... I left. So now, I went you, to you saw him. him. Did you run over to call medical help? Call 911? No, I didn't help? do anything. I... Now, was there a phone in the garage or a cell phone? No, or no. you run back to the house and call 911? No, I, I went to the funeral. So he saw his son trapped and dead under the truck and still left for the funeral? Yes. Version two is far more ridiculous than version one. And instead of screaming for help, going to get help, he simply goes, well, okay, my son's dead. I mean, it was an accident, and it's, 
I blame myself every day. But now when he returns and he finds his son dead underneath the truck is when he flips and goes crazy and starts screaming for help. I love that kid more than because I knew he was struggling. I knew he went through what I went through as a kid, you know. I would give my life for that kid. I think uh, throughout the interview, he was convinced that, that he was going to convince us. I mean, he had, he had, a, he had reason to think that way. He, he had gotten away with it for a long time. The interview ultimately lasts for nine hours. Well, they put on the pressure harder. Carlson asks to move his chair, right? He moves his chair, he puts it in the corner of the room. Both the investigators have literally backed him into a corner. Did you tell Cindy that you, when she asked you if, the car, if you push the car over and leave, and she asked you, did it push hard? Do you remember telling her no, it pushed easy? I, I don't remember ever. Could have you said that? I could. If it's on the audio yeah, tape. If it, it is, then I probably right, I I said it. it. Yeah. You keep pushing, and yet a third story emerges. Come on. I'll walk with you, man. I'll walk with you. Was it just a split-second thing? I felt like I was getting close with him. It, it's almost like a physical thing. You can almost feel it. Uh, I thought he was close to telling me something more uh, about what really happened that day. And it would turn out Carl Carlson would have one more version of this story. He said that when he went out into that garage, that his son Levi was still alive and was actually working on the truck. Never heard him. imagine walking away and leaving your child dying on the floor. They were going to a funeral. Yes. And yet many would argue he had just created one right here in his own garage. We know that there's the real version is version four, the untold version, where Carl jacked it up on this single post, got Levi to get underneath there, and with all his force pushes the truck over on him causes this truck to crash down onto Levi. What kind of parent or father would push a truck over on their own child and let them suffer and die underneath that truck? That evening after the interview of Carl, we arrested Carl for the murder, murder in second degree, and for the insurance fraud. I remember thinking, no, oh, that one in California certainly needs to be looked at a lot harder than it was. I went to go visit him when I was like, I know that you killed my mother. And he, he smiled like a Cheshire cat and he said, it's been 22 years. They haven't caught me yet and they're not going to. Once Carl was charged in New York, it gave me a glimmer of hope 
that maybe we could finally get some traction in Calaveras County. Look at me, please. Please. Chris, thank you. Two decades after Christina died in that house fire, her sister Colette never gave up. She believed that this was not an accident. It turns out the investigators in New York had been digging into this case as well. Watch Carl, I don't trust that man. <laughs> We're interviewing Carl about Levi, obviously, because we're investigators with New York State. But we're going to further this investigation in California. Well, about halfway through the interview, he does make a real off-the-wall remark. He comes out and, and says, what kind of person does that? What kind of person kills his, his, his own son or his wife? There's nothing that can justify killing your wife, your kids, your your uncles, your parents, your. I mean, it'd be different. It'd be different if you killed. Uh, I didn't say you killed your wife. No, I know, but I'm just saying, you know, I mean, that's why I'm saying wife, kids, whatever. Carl, did well, you? No, no, I already been through that. No, hell, no, and no way in hell. I thought it was a strange thing for him to bring up. California was on his mind, even if it wasn't necessarily on ours at the moment. Does he stick to his story about what he told in 1991? To some degree, yes, and some degree, no. So was there a window in the back? There was one that was like extremely, extremely, extremely small. But of course there was that video that Christina's cousin made showing us exactly how big that window was. This here is the bathroom where Christina was found. On a picture of this window. Was it like an old window? Or was well, the window was like that big and it was boarded up. Wait, did you board it up? What's that? Did you board it yeah, up? Yeah, we had to because it was no good. But you couldn't fit out of it. You couldn't put, you might be able to put a baby out of it. A baby. You and I are an uh, 80 pound woman. There's no way. That video zoomed in on that bathroom window, and you could see it was large enough for a person to get out of. Why don't you give Carl a big kiss? <laughs> oh, jeez. The investigators ask Carlson about the insurance policy that he had on his wife, Christina, uh, and how long before her death that he actually took that policy out on her. So about how long before, do you think? <sighs> it's, it's... Was it like in other people's minds, like relatively soon? <laughs> It's gotta be, it's gotta be, it's gotta be like three, four months or something. Oh, okay. But detectives already know, and Carl certainly should have known, that he had taken out that life insurance policy just 19 days before Christina died. very simple. The truth is the truth. But when you start telling lies, it's hard to remember the lies and retell the lies. And for every lie, you tell two lies. And for the two lies, you tell four lies. And, and it keeps getting compounded. It's, it's interesting. <clears throat> the the uh, situations you've had occur in your life. Tell me about it. I look back at it. It doesn't strike twice. No, it strikes. Well, I'll tell you what. When friends get around and I, we talk about that and it's like there's no way how can one person have this much happen? 
There were so many people that harbored suspicions in 1991. There was documentation from State Farm Insurance, from fire investigators. Fire investigators like Ken Buskey, who was hired by that insurance company all those years ago, back in 1991, turns out he had even more damning evidence that this fire wasn't an accident, that this fire was intentionally set. It appeared that the fire had started on the carpet outside the bathroom door, so I was very interested in the carpet for that reason. Buskey examined that carpet closely, and he discovered something that was surprising. His report noted that there was evidence of a second kerosene pour right before the fire. Not the spill that happened from the dog and cat roughhousing around. This pour happened right before the fire. The second spill appeared to be a deliberate pour. Anywhere from a, you know, a few seconds to a matter of just a few minutes prior to the fire. And so at that point in time, I was thinking that the state of California would proceed to treat this as if it were a murder. I kept my files and still have my files. And there would be another person who never gave up the evidence that he collected, state investigator Carl Kent. Carl Kent harbored suspicions for so long that when he retired, he took documents, two boxes of them, uh, with an audio recording, with papers, and kept them. That's the only one that I've ever done that with. I would have loved to have gone to New York. I think I could have uh, talked to Carl, and it may have taken, you know, five, six, seven, eight, ten hours, who knows, of talking to him. I think we might have been able to get a confession. After Carlson is arrested in New York for the murder of his son, the media catches wind of it, and it becomes a huge story. A man accused of killing his wife and son for the insurance money. Do you have anything to say, sir? Tonight, it's the explosive case, but was the accident really a surprise to everyone? Because when investigators start digging, a shocking discovery. Was there a deadly pattern in this family after all? The media brought so much attention to this case. Uh, it was relentless, the pressure that was continuing to put on Calaveras County. That's what really got things going. But before he could get to trial, Carlson did something that no one saw coming. I was thrilled and I was pissed because it was him in control again. We were never allowed to talk about our mother. But Levi and I would talk about it a lot, about what he remembered, about what I remembered, and about how things just didn't add up. A year or two before Levi moved out, Levi and I told our father that we knew that he had murdered our mother. Levi was around 17 years old, and Carl had heard that Levi was telling people that he, Carl had killed his mother. He was arguing with our father and just blurted it out. I remember is Carl just saying, why would you say that I, I killed your mother? What are the people gonna think? Levi, God love him. He had a steel spine, so he did not back down. And that only infuriated my father further. And it resulted in a, a fist fight in the kitchen. After he was jailed, I went to go visit him. He wanted 
to be able to give me a hug or something and he was very pissed off that he was in this box and he was trying to convince me that he never would have killed her brother he never would have killed her mom and I just listened to it for a little bit and I stopped him and I looked at him and I was like I I know that you did this and I know that you killed my mother and he paused and it was like he completely calmed down and he looked at me he smiled like a Cheshire cat and he said it's been 22 years they haven't caught me yet and they're not going to after he was arrested I was involved as much as I could I followed every news article and I was excited I wanted that thing to go to trial because there was no way he was gonna walk off that thing no trial in Levi's case. After insurance fraud was dropped as a charge, Carlson pleaded guilty. Carlson admitted to killing his son. It was a huge relief to know that we weren't going to have to go through trial. Carl ultimately pleaded to second degree murder. Carl's image is super important. I felt that in the New York case, when he saw the witness list, including his own children testifying against him, I think he thought he was going to look bad. That was his cowardly way out and not doing that trial. That was him in control again. As a part of his plea deal, Carlson had to stand up in court and tell the judge exactly what he had done to his son. And in this version of the story, he tells the court something more horrifying than we ever thought before. He admits that he pushed the truck onto his son. He jacked it up on a wobbly jack, knowing that it was life-threatening for someone to be underneath it, and that Levi was still alive when he left. He left his son Levi alive, crushed under that truck, and walked away. It was devastating for me to have my dad admit that. It wasn't just the loss of my brother. With that one statement, it was the loss of my father, too. He was sentenced to 15 years to life in the New York State prison system. He showed no remorse today. It's like it was a game, and it wasn't a game. It was people's lives. I didn't like the sentence at all. Was my nephew only worth 15 years? Some of the Carlson family say there's more work to be done. Not here, but in California. Then there'd be a turn. Authorities had decided to reopen the investigation into Christina Carlson's death in California back in 1991. For all these years, I've literally thought the man got away with murder, uh, and there was nothing I could do. And the hard part is you never forget. I think it really was the media exposure in combination with the New York State Police pushing California. And of course the family, my aunt, God love her, my aunt Colette was on them like white on rice to make sure that this happened. I definitely ramped up my activities to try and get their attention that, you know, we're still out here, we're still waiting for justice. The authorities in California start digging into the case and they unearthed evidence that had long been forgotten. You 
start to hear about all these former figures that were at the forefront in 1991 getting contacted again. So I pick up the phone and I'm totally surprised to hear about this case has come back. The DA's office in Calaveras County, they contacted me and says, uh, do you know anything about the fire that happened in 1991? And I go, yes. And they said, do you know where the, the records are? All these years later, that California fire investigator still had those two boxes of evidence sitting in his basement, and he turned them over to the DA. This evening, a brand new development for the 2020 exclusive you saw here first. The DA there suddenly announces that they're charging Carl Carlson in the death of his first wife, Christina. I was very surprised when California's case went forward. That case is 29 years old. I knew that those witnesses and that evidence were going to be scrutinized. I was very eager to see California's trial play out. We as a family needed to see it play out. I submit to you that the defendant built Christina a coffin and trapped her in there. Christina took her last breath trapped in this coffin. It just becomes more unbelievable with every development no one could have seen where this was going. Everybody in the courtroom just kind of sucked in their breath. They were so surprised. This was not an accident. It was intentional. We want to go to trial. My mom never stopped believing. She believed from the very beginning that the trial would actually occur, and she's got a very strong faith, you know, and ultimately she was right. The trial took place in Calaveras County Superior Court approximately 29 years, almost to the date after Christina Carlson died. It was heartbreaking to see my dad in the courtroom. He turns and looks at me and smiles. Just a normal dad looking and smiling at his daughter. And, and it brought back all of these emotions. Christina Alexander Carlson was so many things to so many people. The defendant, through cold and calculated measures, extinguished the light that was Christina. And he did it on purpose. The prosecution scores an early victory by convincing the judge to allow them to tell jurors about the previous incidents and all the insurance payouts to Carlson. I'd say it was absolutely foundational to the setup of their case that the jury know not just about the death of Christina, but about the barn fire, about the car fire, about the death of Levi. So when he says, who could do that? Who could kill their wife that way? Well, we already, we already know that you killed your, your son that way. Carl has a conviction in New York for the murder of his son. I can't argue against that, and I, I wouldn't try. You're not here to determine whether he's a good and pious man. That's not your job. Your job is to determine if the people have proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Carl killed his wife and that he did it for money. The first person on the stand was Erin DeRoche. She knows what happened. She knows what her father did to her mother. 
She could speak so clearly about the moment that everyone was evaluating. I testified about his behavior after getting us out of the house. And of course, for the, the few days following the fire. She brought memories of her confronting Carl after his arrest and the death of Levi. It doesn't get much more damning than someone who's supposed to love you unconditionally says, I believe he killed my mother. I know he killed my brother. I was very nervous to testify. Uh, I've never participated in anything like this before. And it was on the stand that Colette tells jurors this chilling story about the very first conversation she had with Carl Carlson after learning that her sister had died in that fire. I went uh, into the house and I told him that I wanted to see my sister. And um, he said, you can't, she's a crispy critter. That was his term, a crispy critter. Everybody in the courtroom just kind of sucked in their breath. I think he truly believed that my sister had burned up in the house and that there would be no evidence, and he was wrong. But some of the most critical testimony came from that fire investigator hired by the insurance company, Ken Buskey. The trouble light didn't ignite this. None of the appliances in the home ignited this. It had to be a person applying a flame to the kerosene. Though Carl Carlson barely spoke in person during the trial, the jury heard him a lot. They heard recordings that were made over the course of his lifetime regarding the investigation into Christina's death. You're not proud of getting money from someone's death. Not proud? Well, I'll tell you where pride comes into it. You break the wall down, you pull your yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, the defendant had motive. His motive in this case was greed. Greed. The defense was questioning the validity of what happened. We all know that that evidence is 29 years old. The defense's argument seemed to be that if the case wasn't strong enough back in 1991, what would make anything different now? This case was ignored 29 years ago. It was brought to them. They looked at it. They said, nope, pass, there's nothing here. I was looking forward to it being done with, and it was the end of week three when the jurors were finally able to go and deliberate. I really thought this would drag out much longer than it did. But the jury came out and said they had a verdict. We, the jury, find the defendant, Carl Holger Carlson, guilty of murder in the first degree. Carlson had no reaction at all. Stone cold. In fact, it looked like he almost expected that verdict. I've never been more humbled by or grateful to 12 strangers in my entire life. It was everything I wanted. He very stoically stood up and he walked away. I really wanted to see him look over his shoulder, make eye contact with those two girls, and just by eye, tell them something. Say something to him. 
never looked back. He walked away on their mother, walked away on their brother, and he just walked away on them again. But before Carl would walk away for good, there would be one more unbelievable twist in this case that it's almost impossible to believe. I mean, who would take out a life insurance policy on little girls? We, the jury, find the defendant, Carl Holger Carlson, guilty of murder in the first degree of killing Christina A. Carlson. The Monday that the jurors came to a verdict was actually Levi's birthday. He would have been 35 the day that the guilty verdict came in, my mother's death. It was surreal. So after all of these years, that fire back in 1991, it was just weeks ago that Carl Carlson finds himself in the Calaveras County Courthouse to hear his sentence. In this case, the defendant would be sentenced to uh, state prison uh, for a term of uh, life without the possibility of uh, parole. I just want to see him rot in jail. You know, I, I'm not a vindictive person normally, but in this case, I am. I, I can't help it. We should have never been investigating the death of Levi. This family went through enough in 1991. It should have ended then. But it turns out that there are people in Carlson's life who think, had he not been arrested, he may have been trying to get away with murder yet again. After Carl collected on, on Levi's death, additional policies are taken out uh, on the two granddaughters. Dad had life insurance policies out on both of my brother's daughters. Levi's widow uh, said that she had recently got a visit from Carl after many, many months of no contact at all, wanting to renew his contacts with his granddaughters and get them out to the farm. Most people don't even realize that you could take out life insurance policies on your grandchildren. I was scared half to death. An accident was gonna happen with one of them. Eventually, Cindy cashed out those policies to make sure that there was nothing hanging over the heads of her granddaughters. It's a relief to know that we don't have to worry for ourselves, for our children, for our nieces, for our nephews. It felt really good that some justice was finally done for this family. It's way overdue. I found these. This is the first time Aaron and Aunt Colette have seen them in a long time. Um, but they are her rings. Uh, um, this is her class ring. She's teeny tiny little fingers. My sister was real small. I mean, I don't think anything you know, of any of value, real monetary value, but it's got obviously the sentimental mm -hmm. value for us. There were so many twists and turns in this case. And one of the things that I think brings real uh, comfort to the family is that Levi is now buried uh, right next to his mother, Christina, in Murphy's, California. They are actually together in Murphy's. I'm very happy that he got to be buried next to mom. I go and I sit and just wonder if I've done enough for her kids. I tried to make sure that they knew their mother through me. Um, and now, you know, with Levi there, it's, uh, they're there together.